an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, looking ahead to 2022's 60th anniversary of the Seattle World's Fair, with four guys who made it happen. Tell me, is, is, is it Seattle or Spokane that's on the ocean? <laughs> <laughs> I know I had a geography lesson. <laughs> and then, from the archives, the hidden history of amateur UFO experts in the Pacific Northwest. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And now time for our resident historian, Felix Spinell, who joins us each Friday morning for All Over the Map. His quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, he answers the question, whatever became of the phantom riverside community of Skagit City? Good morning, yeah. Felix. And Dave, yeah, Skagit City was described 100 years ago as the oldest settlement and business point on the Skagit River. In its heyday, from about 1869 to 1879, it had hotels and stores, saloons, a school, church, other public buildings. It secured a post office in 1872, which was a big deal in those days. There was a wharf along the river, and there were steamboats that connected Skagit City to Port Townsend, Seattle. Now, I drove up there yesterday to look for myself, and I can report that the city is not there anymore. Uh, the road is still called Skagit City Road, and the river is still there, and it's really beautiful. I've got pictures of it on Twitter. Now, where this is, it's south of Mount Vernon on Fur Island, and that's between the north and south fork of the Skagit River. If you ever exit I-5 at Conway and drive toward the Connor, you've pretty much driven very close to Skagit City. Now, the reason it was there in the first place was because just upriver from there was a huge log jam walking the entire river, probably a half mile long. It had been there for maybe hundreds of years. It was many layers thick, so much so there was sediment in places and trees growing from the middle of the river. But by about 1874, settlers began trying to remove that jam and an even longer one upriver from Mount Vernon. So once that jam was cleared, which took several years, and steamboats could go farther upriver, Mount Vernon pretty much robbed Skagit City of its prominence. Uh, the post office shut down in Skagit City in 1904. There was one general store left by then. I like what a historian wrote in 1906. He said, Skagit City is associated with so much of importance and interest in connection with the early days of Skagit settlement that it will always live in local history. Its mission as a town, however, seems to have been fulfilled. I hope someone will say that about me someday, not not as a town, but as a as a radio historian. And based on what I saw last night, I have a new slogan for Skagit City. Here it is. Yes. There's a lot more Skagit than there is city in Skagit City. <laughs> well, the, there's only one thing to be done. Bring back the log jam and the city will recover. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to suggest that next time I go up there, if yeah. I can find anyone, I'll let them know to, to try that and maybe shut down Mount Vernon for once and for all. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Right from the start, Spokane's charm and lively spirit put us in a holiday mood, which was heightened when we reached the country club where the Washington State Open Golf Tournament was in progress. This is World's Fair Newswire. An up-to-the-minute progress report on America's 1962 Space Age World's Fair, prepared especially for this station by World's Fair News in Seattle. 
Oh, my gosh. The, <laughs> the future was everywhere back in 1962. Uh, before it opened, I didn't know this, Felix. Before it opened, the the 62 World's Fair was dismissed by some people as the Mercer Street Carnival. Uh <laughs> It will mark its 60th birthday next year, but Felix is not going to to wait for that. He convened a group of surviving World's Fair staffers to talk about what the diamond anniversary of the Century 21 Fair might look like. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Morning, Yeah, so 60 years is a long time ago. I remain a little obsessed with Seattle World's Fair history for a couple of reasons. One is that it's still so present. Seattle Center, the Space Needle, the Monorail, the Fountain, even you know, Climate Pledge Arena. The basic layout of the fairgrounds is still in place. Second reason is that Seattle Center is physical evidence of a watershed moment in local history when the city and the region dramatically changed. There's not much in the way of other artifacts of other watershed moments. Anything about the Klondike Gold Rush or World War II, those major events feel really abstract to me by comparison. Now, the third reason is the people who pulled it off, who made it much more than that carnival on Mercer Street, and who kept on doing cool things. And there's still a handful of guys around who were closely involved with the fair. I got four of them together through the magic of Zoom a few days ago to talk about the past and the future with an eye to next year's 60th anniversary. Junius Rochester is a writer and historian. His father, city councilman Al Rochester, actually had the idea for the 62 fair to mark the 50th anniversary of the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition held at the UW campus. And Junius ran a booth in Seattle during the fair for the upcoming 1964 New York fair. He has a ton of memories, of course, including opening night at the Opera House with Van Cliburn and Igor Stravinsky. But another musical memory really stands out. Jackie Souter's band had marched uh, every single day, almost every single day, through the fairgrounds and changed his tunes and had people join him and stopped and to converse with people. And uh, the music was around us all the time. It enveloped us. It was very, very exciting. It was a, a physical thing, an audio thing but uh, a memory that will never leave me. Let's hear a little bit of Jackie Suiters. All right, here's Jackie Suiters, ladies and gentlemen. So imagine guys dressed in those band uniforms marching around the Seattle Center, the fairgrounds, playing music like that almost all day. Really wonderful memory for, uh, for Junius Rochester. Now... Albert Fisher was head of television and movies for the fair. He's the guy who got President Kennedy on the phone for the opening ceremonies. He escorted Elvis Presley all over while they were filming that famous movie. And he later worked on other fairs and had a long career in, t in television in Hollywood. Albert Fisher says that the more recent fairs he's seen are far more commercial. He says Seattle was special in its focus. Seattle was really the one of the last great fairs that did showcase the achievements of of mankind in the arts and the sciences. And uh, I remember uh, that opening night at the Opera House with Stravinsky and Van Cliburn. And it was, it was an exciting event. Uh, but, you know, every day at the fair was something exciting and different and, and unusual. Yeah, and it went on for six months. And Louis Larson told us that every day at the fair was like New Year's Eve. Larson's now 96. He's the last surviving senior staff member of the fair. He managed advanced ticket sales and then escorted VIPs around the fair, including Prince Philip and Adlai Stevenson. Not together, of course. Before the fair, he barnstormed the country selling sponsorships and exhibit space. That was the money that kept the fair management going before the, before the thing opened. Now, Louis Larson told us about one memorable visit in 1960 to a Midwest manufacturing executive. International Harvester, Vice President of 
I think marking or something. And I, I make the pitch and he's in his big chair and he turns around, looks out the window and he turns back and he says, now, tell me, he says, is it Seattle or Spokane that's on the ocean? <laughs> <laughs> I know I had a geography lesson. <laughs> so these guys all have great stories and great memories, but like the fair itself with its Century 21 theme, the anniversary conversation really turns the fair's legacy, Seattle Center itself, and how it has continued to evolve. This is Junius Rochester again. One of the great uh, results, uh, inheritance of the fair, was a civic center uh, like no other. And it's still vibrant today. And that's the kind of thing we should probably celebrate when we talk about uh, Century 21, the Seattle World's Fair, is another chapter in, in the perfect uh, use of a large tract of land in the center of a great city. Now, the fourth guy in the group is C. David Hubanks. He worked for Louis Larson during the fair, producing events. And then after the fair, he became assistant director of Seattle Center. He was there during the years when Bumbershoot and Northwest Folklife became institutions. C. David Hubanks looks at modern downtown Seattle with places like Benaroya Hall and the Art Museum. He sees Seattle Center as the cultural incubator. If there hadn't been a place for it, those things to grow, it never would have happened. And yet Seattle Center is still filled with performing arts and visual arts. Uh, some of them are a little different than what started, but, you know, and then you look downtown, new symphony halls, new art museums. They would never have gotten there if there had not been a Seattle Center to start with where they could touch and talk about being in the downtown world. But that doesn't mean that Seattle Center lost anything. Look at all that stuff that's still there. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I walked around Seattle Center yesterday, and the bones of the old Washington State Coliseum are there. It's Climate Pledge Arena. It's getting ready for the crack in this fall. Now, folk life is virtual this year. Bumbershoot won't happen again until 2022. But I checked with Pacific Northwest Ballet. They're bringing back in-person performances in late yes, September. Yeah, Seattle Opera told me they'll be back with La Boheme in October. And that's what C. David Hubank zeroed in on, something much bigger than a birthday party for the Space Needle. This isn't nostalgia. It's really about the whole economy and a way of life coming back. It's the 60th anniversary, yes, but it's, it's the spark of a rejuvenation of the city and the place where it all got started, uh, which was the World's Fair, then Seattle Center. And on that very site, here comes all of these incredible institutions uh, in the rebirth and enhanced use of the facility, because the facility has never died, seems to me that's a positive way to look at it. Yeah, these guys all think really big, and that's what I like. I think we're past the age of singular events that can change the city the way the World's Fair did, but this kind of big thinking should never go out of style. And so whatever celebration might look like next year, I know we'll have lots more great stories to share, and I'm going to keep talking to these guys over the next couple months, and hopefully something will come together for 2022. That would be great. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, some of the earliest amateur efforts to understand UFOs or UAP happened right here in the Pacific Northwest. Historian Felix Bunnell has been out night stalking since the last time we saw him. And we're talking this morning, Felix, about an event from April 1st, 1959, 
Uh, no prank. It actually happened, right? Yep, yep. And it's really two stories. It's about a UFO incident and um, the homegrown national efforts around here to track UFOs sort of seriously by amateurs back beginning in the 1950s. Kind of a cool story. So it's the evening of Wednesday, April 1st, 1959, an Air Force C-118, that's the military version of a DC-6 airliner. It's on a training exercise doing touch-and-goes at McCord, you know, what's now JBLM, and flying around the area. About 8.12 p.m., the tower at McCord asked the pilots of that plane to delay their return so some fighter planes could land on the runway. About, it was about five minutes later when something went terribly wrong. And at the time this happened, and this is where the UFO controversy comes in, is supposedly the guy made a radio call saying, uh, we've hit something or something has hit us. And which which you don't find in any of the accident reports, interestingly enough. But but several newspapers carried that story. That's Lee Corbin. He's a retired military and airline pilot who's been researching the story for many years. We met out at the crash site last Friday in the snow. It's in Bonnie Lake, south of Highway 410, not far from this huge planned community called Tehale. What had happened, it was later reported by the Air Force, was that the pilot and co-pilot thought the tower was tracking the plane's altitude, and the tower thought the pilot and co-pilot were tracking their own altitude. So it was dark, and there weren't many houses or lights out there, and they were flying just too low to clear a place called Sparpole Hill near Ording. The right wing struck the treetops there. The wing was damaged, and it caught fire, but the the plane managed to fly for another six miles or so. The right wing peels off the airplane, and about that same time, the the co-pilot makes a radio call saying this is it because they know they're going in. So the airplane uh, loses its wing, rolls inverted, and then just basically noses in right here. So the plane crashed and exploded. There's a huge fire that consumed much of the wreckage. But also that night there was a series of sonic booms and other uh, lights and things heard and seen around Puget Sound that some some witnesses had reported. And this, combined with the news that the pilot had said they might have hit something, helped spawn theories about the crash, that it was caused by a collision with a UFO. Now, these theories were collected and written about by a Seattle firefighter, this guy named Bob Gribble. He was a pioneer in the amateur study of UFOs going back to the 50s. He's still alive. He's in his 90s now, but I've been told he has dementia. So I reached out to Peter Davenport. Um, when Bob Gribble retired, of the Nas- retired from the National UFO Reporting Center that he'd founded, Peter had volunteered to take over. Now, he's based here in Seattle. He was based for many years, and you might hear him every now and then on Coast to Coast AM. He's uh-huh. on giving the National UFO Report. Anyway, so Peter told me, I asked him, had he, had he ever heard of this case before? I think Bob Gribble did mention this case to me once before. What triggered my memory was the fact that the plane appeared to have been pressed down vertically to earth rather than hitting, striking the earth at uh, a slant angle. So Bob published an article in May 1959 about his investigations into the Bonnie Lake crash. He detailed the odd sounds and lights and what he described as the silencing of local officials about what had really happened. It doesn't really help clear things up much to see the crash investigation report. Um, it still has about two pages of text that are redacted, and Lee Corbin has tried for years to get the full report, and he's been denied multiple times. And all those details aside, it's pretty cool to hear Peter Davenport describe this sort of big-picture, scientific and non-sensationalized approach that Bob Gribble took to studying UFOs from right here in Seattle. He set up the National UFO Reporting Center and the Aerial Phenomenon Research Group, and he also formed a hotline, a telephone hotline, which is the hotline I run today. It's been in continuous operation since October of 1974. Yeah, and as it turns out, Bob Gribble was just one of a handful of nationally influential people in this area who compiled information and studied UFOs for decades. 
there's sort of something quintessentially Northwest about this. Sort of reminds yeah. me of D.B. Cooper of Sasquatch. Right. So I can't can't quite put my finger on what what the unifying element this, is. We're in this isolated corner where weird things tend to happen. <laughs> yeah, I guess, and maybe we attracted people here. But one important footnote about this: I asked Peter Davenport, you know, who's going to take over when he retires, the way he took over for Bob Gribble 24 years ago, and he's not sure. I also asked him what will happen to those irreplaceable decades of UFO reports that he and Bob collected. That's a good question. I've approached the University of Washington to inquire whether they'd like to have my records, and they uh, expressed disinterest. Uh, The library said, because we don't have courses on the subject, we're not interested in having the archives, which makes sense, I guess. But uh, I might just burn it. There's very little good that the archives would do if people are not going to pay attention and really uh, express interest in the field, I don't know what to do about it. I don't have a solution to that problem. Well, that would be the ultimate redaction. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the, the archives are of interest to UFO researchers, of course. But what's even more interesting is the fact that you have to sort of peek into the human psyche for these many decades of whoever yeah. it was was calling and what they were saying and what, what they were reporting. So, well, wh- why is it that, that a UFO is suspected of this? It sounds like the, there was a navigation problem. You hit a mountain. Well, I mean, but the fact all this stuff's redacted, the fact that there are all these other odd lights seen and sounds heard, and then this notion that this um, they reported they hit something or something might have hit them. And then, you know, this uh, what Bob Gribble found is that the authorities there in Ording, who had been cooperative at first, then were sort of silenced by the military, he says, in this report he wrote back in May of 1959. Yeah. And, and Bob Gribble and these other people, they strike me as completely scientific. I asked Peter some questions that were kind of wacky. He said, well, I can't answer that because that would be speculation. So there's sort of, there's definitely yeah. there's a science. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, I, there are, there are some pretty serious UFO researchers. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I grant you that. But I mean, in 1959, the, well, the military is always paranoid, and but they were yeah. especially paranoid in the 1950s. But this plane was a transport. It wasn't some kind of a combat aircraft. And yeah. the fact there's still two pages that are redacted that you can't get, you know, here to what almost 60 years later. You know, it, it, who knows? It's who knows what actually really happened. But there's just enough questions to make it still kind of interesting to look back and wonder why they redacted that stuff in the first place and why they won't, they won't let it go now. But walking the crash site, it's still littered with pieces of Did aluminum. You, is this a piece of it? Found. Yeah, there's this is oh, all over cow. the place. It's not this like is... exactly littering the ground, but if you look, it took us probably 30 seconds to find that. This it's is a, a piece from the plane. Twisted piece of fuselage from the C-118 from the crash 59 years ago this week. Yikes! I don't feel like I should be allowed to have this. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.